I am Larry Van Mersbergen, the host of the Doctor Who Collectors Podcast. Now that you're reading the Doctor Who Target books in story order and enjoying the thorough discussion of them, maybe you'd like to collect them, or even collect the hardcover editions, or maybe the Pinnacle American editions. For all things in the world of Doctor Who merchandise, from books to the Dalek weather vanes and Dalek cufflinks to the really unusual. Tune in to the Doctor Who Collectors Podcast, available on Apple Podcasts and Podbean. You are listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast. Enjoy your travels. Do you ever get a flash of a memory of a movie you saw as a child but can't remember the name? Perhaps you caught it on TV while staying up later than you should have. Or maybe you never saw it, but you recognize the cover art from the neighborhood video store around the block. At the Video Junkyard Podcast, we dig up these forgotten films and franchises and see if they still hold up in the digital age. You know, one person's trash is another's treasure, something like that. Each episode, hosts Eric Gilbranson and Joe Peterson discuss a number of films selected thematically. We'll be looking at the best, the worst, and the best of the worst at the Video junkyard podcast you are listening to the doctor who target book club podcast happy listening hi this is sylvester mccoy and i play doctor who number seven on doctor who well yeah i could play doctor who number seven on something else anyway you're listening to a rambling doctor who for the doctor who target book club podcast enjoy your travels with a book Hello fellow time travelers and welcome back to the Doctor Who Target Book Club, the podcast in which we undertake the generous task of discussing in story order all the Doctor Who novelizations, because Genesis, Generous are actually the same root in Latin. Anyway, it doesn't matter. My name is Tony Whit, and today we have an equally generous three-person discussion panel, including our so-called expert who's been a Who fan since 1979. That would be me. There's our intermediate-level casual fan who's seen several episodes but has not previously read any of the books until these podcasts, and this time it's the worthy Dalton Hughes. Hello, Dalton. Hello, hello. We also have our semi-casual fan, one who's seen little to none of the original series and has not previously read any of the books except for the ones we've done for this podcast. And this time around, it's the wise and witty Alison Fitch-Seyfried. Hello, Alison. Greetings from the lakeshore. And finally, we have a fan who's generated even more content than I have, the the tantalizing Trey Corte. Hello, Trey. Hey, hey. Okay. I was looking forward to meeting Tantalee Corte. Tantalee Corte. Oh, well. Our new panelist from Mississippi. (laughs) Of course, you have to make reference to something I'm going to cut out. Thank you ever so much. (laughs) I do what I can. Did you miss me? Yeah. Yes, we did. Oh, Lord. (laughs) Ever so fucking much. Okay. Yes. (laughs) I can leave. I'll leave that. No, no, I'll leave that in now. No, please, no. No, please, don't go. That would be awful. Yes, exactly. Here's your hat. What's your hurry? (laughs) If you like what you're hearing, though I can't imagine that, Please check our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash DWTargetBC. This may be one of the last times I say this, and I'll tell you why in a second. 
Depending on the amount you give per month, you will receive, among other possible goodies, a randomly chosen BBC book, not a Target book. Since we know you have so many of them, you have a special bunker to keep them from escaping. <laughs> Just to say thank you for being willing to help us stay on the virtual air. And as usual, we'd like to thank our regular patrons, Deep Breath, Bart Lammy, Rick Taylor, Toby Bengelsdorf, Jay Berry, The Video Junkyard Podcast, The Doctor Who Collectors Podcast, Hans Wax, Stephen Pickering, James Sumnall, Dave Davis, and our new patron, Guy Lambert. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, Thanks, y'all. Now, the reason why I may not be doing that whole spiel the same way next time is because, and this is something our listeners may want to, you know, weigh in on at some point, I'm thinking of changing the offerings that we have on Patreon because... Obviously, most of you listening to this podcast have the Target books, because when I used to give out Target books, you would say, no, I've got the Target books, which is why I switched to BBC books. But then I heard, no, I've got the BBC books. So I'd like to start offering things that you probably can't get anywhere else, such as, you know, face masks with the Doctor Who Target Book Club podcast logo on them, or t-shirts with the same thing on them, or mugs, or tote bags so that we're just like PBS. So, yeah, let us know. I remember one year, WTTW <laughs> <laughs> sure. was giving away a Prius, and they said, doesn't that just beat the old tote bag with a stick? <laughs> it really does. <laughs> well, it runs over it backwards and forwards, and with a lot of gas efficiency, too. Yes. Well, well, we're not going to give you a Prius, obviously, but we can provide one of those goodies. Just, you know, weigh in and let us know. We're going to make that change sometime in the next few months. But it does mean that part of the spiel will soon be going away, which is a shame because I rather like that part. We also have our Goodreads discussion group where you, the listener, can discuss upcoming books and previous podcasts. You can find us there at tinyurl.com forward slash Y7KMASPR. In fact, we expect you to. We continue our discussion now of the first season of the Tom Baker era with Terrence Dick's novelization of Genesis of the Daleks. Without further ado, here are some fast facts. Doctor Who and the Genesis of the Daleks, adapted by Terrence Dix from the script by Terry Nation that aired from 3, 875 to 4, 1275, published by Target Books in July 1976. As of this recording in October of 2020, this title is currently in print from BBC Books as a facsimile edition and is available as an unabridged audiobook, 140 pages. This story, for better or for worse, is considered one of the Big Mac daddies of the entire series. And for good reason. It's the first time Terry Nation writes a script that doesn't feel like a rehash of every other Terry Nation script. <laughs> is it his first one? So we well, can't be rehashing yet? No. I mean, there are still things that are elements that are re repeated from previous scripts, but they're kind of buried under the new stuff, so... It's the first appearance of Davros, whom, spoiler alert, we will see many, many times to come. And as we discover later, it's considered by no less than Russell T. Davies to be the first volley in the Time War between the Daleks and the Time Lords. And surprisingly, it's the Time Lords that start it. It also tends to come in rather high in most fan polls. And in the new series, a scene from the story appears in the 2015 episode, The Magician's Apprentice, in which the Twelfth Doctor actually does face the choice of being able to kill Davros as a child. Hmm. And, of course, he chickens out, so spoiler yeah. alert there. 
<laughs> it was actually Terrence Dix who commissioned the original version of the script just before leaving a script editor, which led to his famous quip about liking the script, but also liking it the first two times he commissioned it. Yeah. Savage. Oh, yeah, I know, right? It was he and Barry Lutz who suggested doing a story about the Daleks' origins, and Nation, who'd grown up during World War II, based the Khaled and Thal precursor races on the Nazis. When producer Philip Hinchcliffe took over, his main request was that the finished script be pacier, as he put it. In later years, Dix would say that the script would have remained much the same had he and Let's produced it, though he said he would have added some lighter scenes to leaven the grim tone, which may explain the tonal changes in the novelization. The story features an amazing cast, including Michael Wisher's Davros, in a performance that set the bar for the three later actors who played the part, only one of whom arguably failed to reach that bar, but more about that much later. Wisher had already appeared in the show a few times and even done Dalek voices in previous episodes, so he was already familiar with the Dalek style of dialogue delivery. Ooh, try saying that five times fast. Ooh. Wisher committed to the role of the paralyzed Avros so much that he famously wore a bag over his head during rehearsals <laughs> in order to keep his performance solely in his voice. Hmm. And since he was also okay. a smoker, he punched two <laughs> holes no in the top. Us. Well, no. Oh, well, that's, well, that's true. Huh? Well, that is true. He's no longer with us, but, oh, God. He also punched two holes in the top so he could still smoke while rehearsing. Which oh, my. <laughs> led to his inevitable death, but not dedicated. while rehearsing the story. Very dedicated. The story also includes Peter Miles from Invasion of the Dinosaurs, who played Professor Whitaker, and later The Paradise of Death, and he plays Nider. In his review, our Patreon Dave Davis points out that there are probably more versions of the story than any other Doctor Who story, which is true. In addition to the original six television episodes, there's the Omnibus Repeat Edition, there's a cut-down vinyl edition with linking narration by Tom Baker, there's an abridged illustrated version in the 1976 Doctor Who and the Daleks Omnibus, and there are two different audiobooks of this novelization one read by later Davros actor Terry Malloy, and one read by Tom Baker impersonator John Coleshaw, with Nicholas Briggs providing the Dalek voices. Dix wrote this book in 1976, the same year that he produced five other books. And in fact, this one was published the month after the novelization of the next story we will be doing, which is Revenge of the Cybermen. This is his 10th novelization. So we're still seeing a Terrence Sticks willing to do a little bit more than the so-called script-to-page style novelizations he's both famous and notorious for. It is clear, however, that here he's definitely working from the script rather than the televised version. So let's have a dramatic reading of the back cover, shall we? Allison, we have missed you so much that we want you to do the back cover reading, if you would. Well, what you're going to really enjoy is me leafing through my email to find this book. <laughs> so prepare for uh, some editing. <laughs> While she does this, I'm, I'm going to be a nerd and quibble a little bit with the claim about there are more versions of Genesis of the Daleks. I'd say Shada might have more iterations. Ah, well, but, it, but it's not a, is it a TV story? Is it a televised story? There's that whole question as well. But Shot has been done so many freaking times. Well, let's count that one off on our fingers. We've got 
what the I guess we could count the original, which was never broadcast and never finished. We got the 1992 VHS. Uh huh. We've, We've got, got the... Pomegan Big Finish version, which was also the webcast of that. We've got the novelization. We've got the audiobook of the novelization. We have the fan novelization. We've got the fan novelization. We've got the Ian Levine animated version, and we've got the official animated version. So <laughs> I think they're neck and neck, to be honest. Yeah. It's... yeah. <laughs> Luckily, we're only doing two versions of Shada once we finally get there, because there are only two books, thank God. Hello, fellow time travelers. Tony Whit from the future here. After editing this episode, I realized that we neglected to mention something rather important here. There are actually three other versions of this book. The Pinnacle Books Edition in 1979, published in the U.S., the Nelson Doubleday Hardback Edition of The Adventures of Doctor Who, in which it was combined with the novelizations of Revenge of the Cybermen and the Loch Ness Monster, also printed here, and the Aeonian Press hardback edition from 1985. That's not even counting the BBC Audio Expanded edition of the LP, the BBC Audio Cassette version of the LP released alongside Slipback, the Blu-ray remaster in 2018, and the Fathom Events Director's Cut shown in theaters in 2018. If we're counting all of these iterations as different versions, then Dave Davis is absolutely right, and Genesis of the Daleks has indeed been released in more versions than any other Doctor Who story. Now, back to the show. That's fine. Ah, Shada, Shada. Anyway. Shada sounds like a swear word in like a frank herbert book or something <laughs> it really does it really does okay so i do have it okay the place scaro time the birth of the daleks after a thousand years of feudal war against the thals davros has perfected the physical form that will carry his race into eternity the dreaded dalek without feeling conscience or pity the dalek is programmed to exterminate at the command of the Time Lord, Doctor Who travels back through time in an effort to totally destroy this terrible menace of the future. Even the Doctor cannot always win. I, I'm not a big fan of random capitalization, but I do try to read it in the <laughs> spirit in which I feel it was intended. I was about to ask you, were those words capitalized, they or were. have you gotten a, a mild form mm -hmm. of Tourette's syndrome? You know what? I, I could totally tell which ones it was. Yes, strange forms of emphasis. Uh, what's, what's actually very, the only thing that's actually offensive to me is not the capitalization, but the fact that there is a space between place and scarrow. The place, space, colon, space, scarrow. Oh, that is dreadful. That hurts. Yeah, the kerning is a little odd there. Or it's not kerning, be... it's just straight up an extra space. After time, oh, okay. the birth of the That's right, because well. kerning would put yeah. the space somewhere else. It's right. not done with loving care. No, nor is the cover, because Tom Baker on that cover looks like he's just terrified looking at Davros, and he looks like he's in a soap bubble. I do like the sepia and the lighting, the extreme lighting on him. Mm-hmm. There is that. But there's nothing about that cover or the back cover that screams, this is one of the most important Doctor Who stories ever! And uh, Davros seems to be either in like in a gimp suit or like the aging leader of a motorcycle club. <laughs> and the answer to both questions is yes. He's he's actually a long lost Cenobite, so 
you know. These are not mutually exclusive scenarios. Yeah. No, they are not. I'm also wondering what his left hand is doing. Um, well, do you, we'll give you the in-universe reason uh, thing that's going on and the real reason. It's more that it just looks like he's playing with himself under his desk. It does, and that <laughs> that joke has been made in on numerous occasions, actually. That reminds me of the climax of Resurrection of the Daleks, then, which makes it sound even funnier what happens at the end there. I was about to say, because that is a climax. That was a, a very sure. interesting series of word choices there. Yeah, well, unfortunately, we're not getting to that story for quite <laughs> a while, but we'll have Trey back so he can explain it to us when it's we get to it. It's a weird mishmash where it looks like three different pieces were just collaged together. And the individual pieces aren't bad, but they don't go together. No, not really. Mm -hmm. Because actually not the really. reflected tones on Davros's tunic are terrific. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's probably from, uh, in fact, I think they used a photo reference for that because this is one of the better covers from this particular era. But I a person painting this all together wouldn't do three different types, three different warmths, which is hard for a person with lisp to say, warmth, mm -hmm. plural, warmth, and uh, locations of light sources like this. But yet do each of the three with such with such attention to detail, and yet no attention yeah. to how they go together. It, uh, it just seems like they had unused art sitting around of a Dalek and of Tom Baker and then. It's not unlike, do you remember what were they called? Color forms? They had beautiful renderings, but a kid would just slap them anywhere. I, I know it's sacrilege, but I think that Chris Achilles is a lot of his designs are like that. Each individual component is very evocative, but the composition and the placement is always kind of strange to me. Mm -hmm. Well, collage was always kind of a big thing from the you know, late 60s into the mid-70s, and I think it was just starting to fade out a little bit. But yeah, I had a color form. It does look like the, the Doctor friends. is Glinda the Good Witch in some ways. <laughs> <laughs> well, in this story, that's just about true. Even though at one point, at a couple points, he turns into the Wicked Witch of the West, but we've got to talk about it. Or, or maybe he so looked down at the Target logo underneath, and where, like, that's the... In the Target logo, you've got the red in the center, then the yellow, then the blue. Now look up at the Doctor in the bubble. It's also sort of the red tone in the middle and then the yellow. Maybe he is floating from the perspective of the Target book reader. <laughs> I'm really making things up tonight, aren't I? That's fine. It's, well, the more things change. <laughs> yes. You know you missed me. I did indeed. <laughs> So I think we already have an idea of what your first impressions are, but let's get them anyway. Dalton, what was your first impression of this book? Well, having seen a lot of the newer series, I've, I've seen where Davros is now. So going back to see kind of his beginnings, or at least his, his introduction, I was interested in that. I was also interested to kind of see the beginning of the Daleks, how his experiments came to fruition. Okay. Allison, how about you? Well, I'm not sure if Trey and Dalton are aware of this, but I cheated on this book. <laughs> I did not read it. I listened to it on Audible. That's okay. Well, but it's actually a very different experience. It's not a full audio production, but there are some sound effects. There is definitely guidance in how you are supposed to read the lines because you're not reading them. I'm actually really thrilled that you've done this, Allison, because that series because i got it on audible too and i'm guessing it's the one that was narrated by john colshaw with yes. Nick Fritz. yeah i imagine these switches control your life support system how long would you survive if i turned them off answer me davros less than 30 seconds 
The doctor moved his hand closer to the switches. Order the complete close-down of the Dalek incubator section. Destroy the Daleks! Never! With one sweep of his hand, the doctor flicked an entire row of switches into the off position. The body of Davros slumped forward like a puppet whose strings have been cut. The doctor waited a few seconds, then turned the switches on again. Eerily, Davros jerked back into life. When he was sure Davros could hear him, the doctor said, Next time I press those switches, they stay pressed. I love that because for me it's a way of re-experiencing the Doctor Who stories in a parallel universe that has a different soundscape and the slight differences with the TV. So that's how I've been reviewing them. I have like pretty much every single one that's been released. So I'm really happy that you've had that experience. So, so I approve. how different is it from reading this, do you think? Oh, that's different because this, this would be a reread for me. So it's you, so that it is a little bit of a different process. For me, it's, it's like a remix of reading it. That's how I feel with those audio books. But that might be a very different experience from you. How did it affect your impression of it, Allison? I thought it was terrific. I loved it from the beginning. So I saw this illustration as the audible, I guess it was still the cover, but I did not read this back of the book blurb. I didn't read any of it at all. That's the first. So I think I confessed this to Tony after the past. Uh, the last uh, episode that I was on, I didn't read that one either. I also did as an audiobook. But then I tried to not mention it <laughs> because I really <laughs> felt that I had cheated. <laughs> no, no. So I didn't mention it until after the recording, but I had started reading it, and then I finished with an audiobook version on that, and I really enjoyed that one as well. And I actually generally am not crazy about audiobooks; I would much rather read. But I've got so much reading that I'm doing for school and work, and then I had some other commitments going on. It was the only way I could fit it in in terms of time, and plus, I've been experiencing some eye strain as well, just because I'm spending so much time on screens. Yeah, me too. So it was a significantly different experience than I expected because there was more dramatization than I thought. But I wonder if I liked the books more or less than I would have reading them or if they're just two particularly enjoyable stories. Well, that's something we've never really talked about on this program, especially since I'm guessing that most of our listeners are re-experiencing these books as audiobooks too, given some of the Patreon reviews that I've read and also most of the reviews I pull from Goodreads are not of the print books, but of the audiobooks. But it was the audiobook, not a radio play. Now, it wasn't written as an audio production, which I guess would be yet another, or a third thing, uh, or I would guess that would be a fourth thing for thinking of the original episode versus the adaptation that you read versus the audiobook. It's just the adaptation with some sound effects versus a scripted for audio only version. I think that would always be different experiences, I think. I agree. And because I'm a huge connoisseur of all the Doctor Who audio stuff that's out there from the full cast dramas to these enhanced audio books where I love the music and the sound effects as my mind wanders with regular audio books. But I'm always able to pay attention to these because I think there's that background in that that just makes it kind of like an audio drama, but not quite um, with the narration. And I'd say with this one in particular, you've got a performer who's known for his voice acting and impressions. So John Colshaw does a great job of channeling the characters, much more so than other narrators in the range. 
So how well do you think he captures the inflection? Because I've heard Tom Baker, but I have no idea what Terry sounds like. I mean, who's Harry and Martyr sounds like? He's kind of like, do you remember Rich Little from the 80s, an impressionist? He's better than I remember than Rich Little Richard. I well, guess no, that's well, different. He's much better. He, he is a celebrity impressionist who's also really interested in Doctor Who. Big Finish have brought him back to play the Brigadier and their new audio dramas, and he does it so well. I like the medium, but Cole Shaw in particular is, his skills as an impressionist lend themselves particularly well for this sort of project. Mm -hmm. And very recently, there was a YouTube video, all of the doctors from Hartnell all the way up to the Judy Whitaker doctor, getting together on a, essentially a Zoom call. <laughs> and many of the voices were done by John Coleshaw, but not all of them. But the ones done by John Coleshaw are definitely some of the best ones because he's so particularly good at it. He didn't get to do Hartnell for that one because they actually got David Brierley to come in and do that one, which is always a, always a pleasure. Is this thing on? Is it operative? Can you hear me? Can you hear me, my dears? This is the doctor calling the doctor. I need your help. Can any of you hear me? Oh dear, Jamie, this is unusual. Ah, I'm speaking to you over the TARDIS telepathic circuits. Yes, and you're coming through loud and clear on Sergeant Benton's Bunsen burner here in the unit laboratory. How delightful. Benton's Bunsen, Benton's Bunsen, Benton's Bunsen, Benton's ah, Bunsen. I see it's you. Still now the grown-ups are here. I'll best leave it to us, old chap. Haven't you got a kazoo you can play with? Ah, well, Trey, I think I already know your impressions of this one, but just in case. This is a weird one for me, because I approach novelizations, you know, that, that whole question of, should a novelization recreate the viewing experience? And we've talked a lot in the past episodes about how the novelization format can improve upon a story. And I'm actually of the opinion that I think this novelization highlights the flaws of the story and <laughs> makes the story worse. Mm. Because I think what makes Genesis so much fun on TV is really down to three main performances, Michael Wisher, Peter Miles, and Tom Baker. And there's some, just some really iconic scenes and moments. Do I have the right? The conversation with Davros, whether he would unleash the virus, the very end with the Dalek. So it's, it's, a, it's a thematically important story, but I have two major beefs with the story, even on television. And to me, the novel accentuates it. One, I can't get past the big plot issue, and, and I hesitate to say this in case it ruins it for anyone else, but these cities have been at war with each other, including like nuclear war, but you can walk to one from the other like in the space <laughs> of yeah. I, yeah. I, I can't deal with that. And that to me is a real, real problem that I would have liked Terrence Dix to deal with. And I was thinking, oddly enough, of the Dominators, because they had this similar sort of thing, but they had those, this gimmick of these little capsules where they went from the island to the mainland. And a conceit like that would have, I think, repaired so much of that. Because that's the part where my suspension of disbelief, for whatever reason, is severely strained. And the whole story rests on this idea of this war of attrition, and they're using the mixed technology, and it's, fan it's, it's this epic feel but then they're just walking back and forth between these cities. And how much time does this story take? And yeah. I get caught up in that. It reminded me of Donald Cotton's, I forget the name of the one that was his, the doctor hangs out in the Iliad. Oh, the myth makers, makers. yeah. Uh, but you know, he makes a joke about there's a traffic jam on the plane in front of Troy. <laughs> there's so much coming and going <laughs> between the city and the ships. So, 
<laughs> I thought it was a yeah, similar thing. Is there like mm -hmm. a moving walkway between the cities? Is there a monorail? <laughs> there might as well be. One of the things that I was amused by is how much effort Terrence Dix is trying to put into differentiating and describing all these interchangeable collets. Mm -hmm. And I think Ronson, I mean, Interchangeable Collets is the name of a band somewhere. It has to be. <laughs> but you know, but I, that's, that's another thing. I, I don't really give a shit about any of these people. And Garmin, Ronson, Cavill, Mogren, which one is which? And they're all kind of bland. And I think like maybe if some of those characters had been combined into one character that we could really follow, you introduce characters like this boy General Raven, who seems to be an interesting symbol for the Kalitsuko, and then he just kind of disappears, mainly because the, I guess the Kalitsuko city gets blown up. But like how the Kalitsuko society is set up, and it's, it's trying to be kind of, and I say it's I, Claudius, because um, Big Finish did a prequel called I, Davros, which is amazing. Mm -hmm. where they do flesh this out but oh, yes. you're going with all these conspiracies and this faction is conspiring and that faction's conspiring and this person's double crossing and that person's double crossing and none of them have enough personality or pathos to like make me give a shit about any of them and, and i can forgive it in the television thing because the the central characters there's there's all those individual beats and moments that make it a fun TV show to watch. But to me, without the performances or David Maloney's direction, then I think the flaws of the script become more bare. So I, I, my first impressions of this one, I remember as a kid of being very confused by it because I tried reading this one before I saw it and I had a hard time keeping track of all these minor characters and who was who and what was the bunker and what was the headquarters and all these sort of corridor settings all seemed the same. I, I, I have really mixed feelings about this novelization. Mm. Well, you're not the only one. I'll, of course, <laughs> get to mine quite soon. But yeah, where do we want to start with this? I feel like my mind actually rejected, not consciously, but just refused to hold uh, the idea that they had been at war for a thousand years. Because that was mentioned at least once, and I think it might have been more than once. The suggestion was utterly dismissed by the computer analysis. And my mind just kept shifting it back to like, eh... 10 to 30 years because you're right it didn't make any sense that they had been at war in this permanent state for this long and had this technology and food in the city and all that sort of thing that i just sort of mm -hmm. dialed it back to more recent history that just reminds me of a situation i would encounter when i used to teach a science fiction elective at the high school and one of the books was ender's game and as <laughs> written that kid is like six years old, yeah. but he's so sophisticated. And, and I talk about this with my students. All my students kind of defaulted and so would just kind of, when they're mentally picturing the action, they would think about a young teenager, like a 13 or 14 or mm. 15 year old. And that even though the text is repeatedly telling us that he's six, his mm -hmm. actions, we just couldn't connect to that. So their mind fills in the blank and kind of rejects it. And I think, hmm. Allison, what you're describing is something very similar. If our minds are doing that, if our minds are that subconsciously rejecting part of the story, that almost tells me that that part of the story is just not working. Yes. Mm -hmm. Even the movie version of Ender's Game ages the character because <laughs> it's as if the movie makers know that most people, when they read that book, age Ender because you just cannot accept that character as a six-year-old. But yeah, same thing here. A thousand-year war just simply would have not lasted unless they are just particularly bad at conducting war, which they kind of are, which might be the reason why we have the Daleks in the first place. But yeah, 
So one of the reasons I actually liked it right away is, remember, I highly value a sense of disorientation. Is I was interested in this mix of ancient and ultra-modern weaponry that was described. And, you know, wearing a combination of synthetic fabrics that were very advanced and fur and leather that were, that were very primitive and the mixture of very primitive weapons and, and sophisticated weapons. But I never entirely understood how it fit in with the thousand years. I was going to ask you, because the disorientation, you missed the last two books. So this is kind of a story arc. So how did you get into the story and were you looking for the TARDIS or how did you react to that? I was pretty confident it would show up at some point, but I just mean, <laughs> I, I assumed that we had not been on this planet before and we weren't supposed to understand this mix of the of the ancient and ultra-modern. So, I mean, I figured that the Doctor would show up eventually. Um, and I, I got enough to understand this is not where they planned to be. They were trying to go somewhere else through some other means of being beamed over in some kind of transport of some sort, and they ended up here instead because the Time Lords diverted the Doctor and gave him this assignment that was unlike what I have seen them do before. I mean, they grounded him before, but they didn't send him on a, an assassination mission previously. No, they mm -hmm. didn't. And that actually speaks of a big change in the way the Time Lords are depicted, which we need to get to at some point. So it didn't bother me at all, Trey. It just seemed like, okay, they have had other adventures. They thought they were leaving their last adventure and going somewhere, and they instead went here. You said you listened to one of the previous books as an audio as well. Was that Ark in Space or yes. was that Ark in Space is the last story that I oh, that okay. I read or actually listened to. So there are one or two that I've missed. If you've listened to Ark in Space, you've actually only missed one. Mm -hmm. And you could actually bridge that story and this one pretty seamlessly because they're going to a transmat at the end of that story. So that could be, very well be the transmat beam that they uh, are intercepting. The and time I think I, I do remember reading or hearing transmat, and I just sort of, once again, put it into a context I understood and just imagined them going, piling to a 1950s automat. <laughs> <laughs> Instead of pie, they got uh, and pie and coffee and chicken pot pie. They um, got beamed over to Scarrow. Mm, chicken pot pie. <laughs> mm, pot pie whip. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Let's start by talking about the Doctor, Sarah, and Harry, because they pretty much settled into their routine by now. How do they feel to us? Other than Sarah fainting. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I, yeah, I feel like they're all pretty, uh, pretty much set in their roles. They all fit what my interpretation of them is. Okay. Is there, apart from Sarah fainting, is there anything particular that stands out? And that's, that's a very pointed question on my part because I'm, I'm, I'm leading us in a very particular direction. Uh, I was just going to say, uh, whenever she kind of leads the rebellion with the workers to kind of escape, that's, that's like the one part that sticks out to me of her kind of being this, uh, this go-getter, this person that really is like going to try to figure out her way out of the situation no matter what. Yeah. So the the fact that she takes that initiative and even with the radiation poisoning that's supposedly going to happen to them, she's like, no, I'm, I'm not going to stay here. I'm not going to keep doing this shit for you. I got to get out of here. Yeah, exactly. And I think you also just brushed your finger over one of the big plot holes in the <laughs> televised version that Dix actually manages to paper over with just one line of exposition 
which I'm very thankful for because otherwise it does stick out. The, a big deal is made of the fact that they're going to die of dystronic toxemia. Yeah. And they never, do, well, she never does. It, you know, it, I think Dix actually has a line that says something along the lines of she was worried about this, but she had so little exposure to it that she figured she'd be okay. Yeah, she lucked out. She only had one and a half shifts. So there we yes, go. Yes, they, they talk about how you, if, you know, you, it's not so bad at first, but then your second week. Or right. Like yeah. I, and I think Dix is trying to paper that over. And luckily he does, because that's something that if you're watching the TV version, you think, okay. This is a big thing, and nothing comes of it. Much like that mix of ancient and modern is made a big deal of in the first episode, and nothing comes of it. Yeah. Because we never see it again in the story, or in the book for that matter. Which is a shame, because as Allison pointed out, that's an interesting bit of plot. Anything else about our three main characters that stands out to you? This is where I think I got the biggest difference in experience because he's doing such a such a Tom Baker impression with the voice work that oh. obviously the voice came through as very distinctively Tom Baker. And I don't know if that would have been similar or different if I'd just been reading the lines. I do like how Sarah in the big moral dilemma scene is like, just fucking kill him, doctor. You know, she's like, <laughs> she's not having it. She's been shot at. She's been exposed to this. She's dealt with the Daleks before. And I mean, this gets into my whole ethics and I, I tend to be kind of a utilitarian, but it's, I always get annoyed like saying Batman when the Batman won't kill the Joker and then he just locks him up and then the Joker escapes and kills all sorts of more people. I mean, uh-huh. I get the like, you're not supposed to kill people and that makes you know better than them. But I've always... I know that he says mockingly, I know, I know, Trey, (laughs) please stop killing people. Well, you're cramping my style, man. I get the, I think sometimes (laughs) there's all this concern about, well, the ends don't justify the means, but I think sometimes the means don't justify the ends. And I, I think Sarah has a very compelling argument. And of course, what gets overlooked is the doctor never actually makes the choice because he's rescued from it by Garmin. And then he does make the decision to go back and then he fails. So I I think the ethics in that scene are very murky, but I I do like that Sarah is kind of speaking for a lot of the audience. It's like, oh, just do it. Just Mm -hmm. do it. Do it. You know, like the Palpatine (laughs) would say. (laughs) Do it. Yeah. <laughs> right. It's like a 90s episode of a TV show that deals with abortion. The resolution is always a, a miscarriage or there was never a pregnancy to begin with. <laughs> yes, exactly. You're right. You're right. Well, at least it's not as bad as when Doctor Who tried to tackle that same issue, but let's not go there right now. Well, but 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 it leads you up to this this extreme moral choice and the implications of it, and then the resolution is no one has to make any sorts of choices or live with them. It, it, it yeah. feels like a bit of an ethical cop out, and I mm-hmm. that always kind of annoys me. But this needs to be retitled "Abortion of the Daleks" because that's oh. kind of like what it is. <laughs> Well, actually, yes, yes. It is very, very similar kinds of, yeah. I'll, I'll abort that sentence, yes. So It is telling that the Time Lords say, don't actually come out and say avert their creation. It's the Doctor who says that, and then the Time Lord says, or discover some inherent weakness. But well, yeah, just, you know, make them go away forever. However you feel that needs to happen, I trust your judgment. Just make sure they don't exist, you know? 
Yeah, exactly. Which is very odd. It, it's also odd that we should have that sort of moral gray area. When earlier in the story, the doctor makes a very strong moral judgment in the wrong direction, and it's one of the more controversial moments in the series, when he is essentially threatening Davros's life to make him stop the production of the Daleks by turning off the life support in his chair. Yeah, I did <laughs> not see that coming. Yeah. Yeah, and nor nor did the audience. In fact, that got some severe complaints, and it's still a matter of debate with fans now. In fact, a similar moment will happen in the next story. And, yeah, the Tom Baker Doctor can be awfully bloodthirsty in these early years, and for that matter, in the later ones, too. We've had a progression, because Pertwee Doctor was significantly more open to killing... Then Troughton Doctor and Hartnell Doctor, but also at the end of the run of his run than at the beginning. Mm -hmm. He seemed like yeah. to be the, seemed like the character was doing things towards the end of the Pertwee run that early Pertwee would have been horrified by. Right. Well, mm -hmm. there is something of um, I I don't necessarily think that it would qualify as a fan theory, though it's something that I've discussed with friends of mine from time to time that each iteration of the Doctor seems to be a reflection on the previous one to some degree that they regenerate and come out of the sort of doctor that used to be and try to revise whatever flaws that doctor had out of their character, but it doesn't always take, which is why sometimes you get things like the Colin Baker doctor coming from the fifth doctor, for instance. It, it certainly sounds like the Davison doctor gets so ineffectual in his last several stories that the sixth doctor has to be more of a... Uh, risk-taker and show-stealer, but yeah, it doesn't always work that way. In this case, though, yeah, certainly the Pertwee Doctor would never have done some of these things that we see in these I stories. I think he might have. I don't, well, I don't think he would have, I don't think he would have threatened Davros in that way, but he uh, has been bloodthirsty about Daleks. That's true. Mm -hmm. That's true. But he wouldn't have threatened Davros that way. I think you're right. Yeah, so there's that for sure. What about this strange thing that happens with the Daleks in the story, and this is something that I, even as somebody who really loves the story, I have real issues with, and it's going to create an issue for the next Dalek story too, the fact that Terry Nation seems to have forgotten that his own creations are not robots. <laughs> Did anyone else catch that? <laughs> I wasn't sure if I was catching something that was an issue or I just wasn't fully understanding the story. Because where I kept getting mixed up on this sci-fi is what was robotic and what was mutation? What, what was an advancement of the mutation that was already happening due to the nuclear exchanges? Like, well. So we have, the muto, we have the mutos who are mutated by, is it nuclear events? Yeah, essentially they're the genetically wounded. And the, I didn't uh, think it was clear, and maybe I just wasn't picking up all the obvious things that were being laid down, but I didn't think it was clear what the Daleks were, whether or not they were a product of engineering or genetic experimentation, or hmm. both. They are supposed to be the result of genetic experimentation. Uh, essentially, Davros trying to come up with what might be the ultimate Khaled creature. Now this is what the Khaleds will become.
That is our future. You've got troubles. And then we're told that he's created a casing for them, so it did seem like mutated Khaled's in this casing who are not robots, but then... I thought the brainwashing was like the form, the, the casing that interacts with the with the mind was instead of just taking direction from the mind, was actually programming the mind. Yeah, and it sounds like that too because he talks about vocabulary banks, for instance, and how. But but he also says he says something to Garmin about make these changes, and Garmin says, but these genetic changes would result in creatures that have no sense of pity and no morals. So it also sounds like it's part of the genetic programming. But the thing that bothers me about all of that is it's never clear how or why exactly the Khaleds would mutate into a creature less able to defend itself rather than more able. It reminds me of that awful Star Trek Voyager episode where Janeway and Paris become lizards. Oh my goodness. (laughs) Do they have a lizard family at the end? Yes, they do. Yeah. Um, Threshold. That's the the Emmy-winning Star Trek Voyager episode, Threshold. Those words should not go together. What Emmy did that win? It won it for makeup effects. Yeah, but yeah, that one should have gotten an Emmy. But it's never made, that never made any sense to me. It's like, that's supposed to be the ultimate form of humanity. No, that's a lesser form, surely. Surely you can't be serious. I am serious. And don't call me Shirley. And in this case, the Khaled mutants don't appear to be any more superbly evolved than their humanoid brethren and sistren. They seem to be less evolved in some ways. So I that, thought they would be me. more evolved to resist the perils of the environment outside the two domed cities. But then why would they need a casing? Yeah, yeah. exactly. Because they can't survive in any other way. Well, as it turns out, Dalek mutants can survive outside their casings. In fact, they're pretty deadly outside their casings, as we see in that once. Oh, wait, no, we don't. I just realized that. That doesn't happen in the novelization. Oh. (laughs) Yeah, I was just going to ask. I don't remember. Do we ever get like a full description of a, a Dalek outside of the casing? In this book, no, we not get, really. We get the scene of the doctor looking into the lab and basically describing that there are creatures in there that are horrific, but we don't actually get like a, a description of them. Well, on screen, we do get to see them to some degree because what's described in the book, and this is how I know Dix was working from the script, when the doctor goes in and tries to blow them up, he comes out and he's enveloped in some sort of living gelatin and he which tries to kill him and it's whatever they're feeding on yeah. it's their nutrient they couldn't achieve that effect on screen so they instead went with oh well let's have one of the Dalek mutants actually attack him physically which leads to one of the more disturbing cliffhangers of the story That doesn't happen in the book, though, and that's what I was referencing just now, because, yeah, Dalek mutants are pretty nasty, regardless of anything. But they're much more nasty when they're in their casings. But they appear to be more robotic when they're in their casings, because they can be programmed with language and things like that. And when we get to the next story that Terra Nation writes, boy howdy. (laughs) Yeah. That is going to be a huge issue. There's the whole scene, too, where Davros is basically like showing them off and giving them commands and telling them to stop and to start and turn left and all that. 
which makes them feel robotic. One of the words they use a lot is program, I think, if memory's serving me right. And as mm -hmm. soon as you say program, that makes you think of robot or a computer. But of course, people can be programmed. And if we're getting into this mm -hmm. sort of Nazi imagery or that kind of idea, you can see how that programming and brainwashing can happen. So genetic conditioning, can you, you, you think about even with animal breeding, oh, this dog is too aggressive, so we won't mate him or those sorts of discussions that happen in mm -hmm. animal oh, breeding. I so yeah. so I, I so wonder- eugenics, if, in other words. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah that so makes I think, sense now. So I think that's where it gets a little bit overlapped. Yeah, selective breeding. Mm-hmm. I think that gets forgotten by the next story. Yeah, because by the end of this, the, the Daleks have basically decided that they control their own destiny. They're not going to listen to what Davros has to say. They are their own entity, and he is below them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Until, of course, he isn't, which is why we keep seeing him again <laughs> and again and again, <laughs> because they have daddy issues. There is yeah. this scenario that there are previous experimental failures or semi-successes just running around feral in the tunnels. Other things, other creatures that Davros has created through experimental crossbreeding or genetic manipulation. And I thought the implication was that he's finally succeeded in that he has developed mutations through genetic editing or crossbreeding. He has developed mutations that have led to a being more devious and intelligent than he is, or at mm. least more devious, if not more intelligent. Well, in that regard, they probably are superior to him because they've outfoxed him, essentially. Mm -hmm. I thought the programming was about a sort of three-level interface between there's the creature inside that has to, the mutant inside that has to learn to interface with the casing to interact with the outside world. And then Davros has to learn to interact with the casing and the mutants through that. I guess I, that's how I was thinking of the programming. It was more a series of setting up communications and kind of protocol for a hierarchy of commands. Mm -hmm. Maybe I'm wrong. Well, no. I think you're putting more thought into it than Terry Nation himself did. <laughs> because it, it, it certainly, this has always been my belief about the Daleks, that the people who write Dalek stories the best are not Terry Nation, generally, mm. except maybe the first one. And there are bits of Dalek Invasion of Earth that are pretty decent as well, but then you start getting retreads whenever he does a story. When somebody fresh and new comes in, like David Whitaker, for instance, or you get somebody like Ben Aronovich later on, and even Eric Sayward, though, those stories have their detractors, obviously. We will be looking at both of those novelizations, too. It seems like other people handle the Daleks a little bit better because they've thought a little bit more about them than Terry Nation himself has. Because in this case, he's essentially just said, oh, yeah, they're Nazis. And, <laughs> yeah, they work on that level. And certainly the idea of eugenics comes in. But when it gets to the nitty-gritty of the whole thing, then you realize that Nation's really not up on his science to the degree that he probably needs to be to make this work. Otherwise, he wouldn't come up with stupid bits of technobabble like dimensional thought circuit. <laughs> I hate that phrase. I despise that phrase. <laughs> I don't know why, but I hate that phrase more than any bit of technobabble I've ever seen in any other, uh, in any Star Trek series. 
Like, here's what I thought worked. The idea that you have Davros, who is a physical creature with intelligence, and then you have the mutants inside the casing who are, you know, not the Daleks, who are the biological part of the Dalek, who are also I... creatures, and that the casing is supposed to be both the physical link between the two and the information link between the two. And mm. the physical part of the casing is it has weapons, it provides shielding, it provides a communication means for information to come in and go out through audio or, or some digital means. But it's also controlling the creature inside. So it only protects mm. the creature and allows the creature to influence the outside physical world, but it also puts the creature in a dependent environment where it's controlled by the life support provided by the shielding. But the information also has a two-way factor mm -hmm. where Davros is thinking in terms of, I will use the casing to give commands to the mutant within and to control it. And the mutant figures out how to use the casing to take control away from Davros and essentially ah. is commanding him by the end. It's how I was reading it. I think you're onto something there because, Trail, correct me if I'm wrong here, but I think that same episode, The Magician's Apprentice, actually does feature the, I think it's Clara, who's inside the Dalek casing and is trying to say something. Yes. What is it she's trying to say? She's trying to say something that gets translated by the casing each time is exterminate. Okay. That's a bit weird. That's a bit weird. Okay. All right. Say your name. Why? Just, just, just say it. Clara. Dalek. Say it again. Clara Oswald. Dalek. Dalek. One more time. I am Clara Oswald. I'm Clara Oswald. I am a Dalek. 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 Don't get emotional. Emotion fires the gun. Okay? I don't understand. I do not understand. Say, I love you. Those exact words. Don't ask me why. Just say it. I love you. I exterminate. Say, you are different from me. You are different exterminate, from me. Exterminate. Exterminate. Say, exterminate. 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 Yeah, and I think that's, I, I can't remember what she's saying, but that's a story that also has this really interesting idea of, that they say that they use sort of a thought energy and that's why they go exterminate, exterminate, exterminate all the time because it builds up this sort of psychic energy. They're literally talking themselves up. <laughs> and I think- It's their hype song. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that, that does make sense actually. But again, that's written by somebody who's thought about the Daleks more than Terry Nation has, <laughs> <laughs> which makes sense because it was written by a fan. Yeah, isn't that always the case? There are a few other things here that are just strange. And part of it, I, th I think the problem that I have with this book has to do with that Terrence Dix anecdote that I read to you about how he said that if he and Barry Letts had produced the story, there would have been more jokes and more lighter moments. We get that in this book. This book is a lighter version of what we get on screen because like it or dislike it, the story on screen is probably one of the grimmest stories in all of Doctor Who. And Dix does a lot of introduction of little jokes or trying to improve on the jokes that are on screen. And 
it just falls flat if you know the actual story. So I'm I'm still very interested in what Allison's experience was of the humor in this because that humor, a lot of it was definitely not on screen. And if it was, it was in a different form. Were there bits of the story, uh, and I'll ask all three of you, were there bits of this book that actually made you laugh or smile or, you know, do something other than just sit there saying, God damn, it's another fucking Doctor Who book? <laughs> I like some of the interplay with the characters, or the three regulars, because they, they, they like each other. And there's the bit where they're saying, oh, some female prisoner caused some trouble and like the doctor and harry are like oh, that's, her. that's her you know so <laughs> <laughs> i i, I like i like that moment but nothing really st- stood out to me as funny maybe some funny ironic but mm-hmm. there's no there's a couple of instances of the doctor and, and harry one time the doctor asks for a cup of tea um, to mm-hmm. kind of lighten the mood. And then there's another point where Harry mentions that maybe they should get something to eat because they've been here a little while and they haven't had anything. And then again, there's kind of the prop comedy with all of the items being pulled out of the doctor's coat. Mm-hmm. Um, things that he's just, you know, carrying around just in case. Um, mm-hmm. and, and that kind of tripping up uh, the people that he's dealing with. So, yeah, other than those, I can't really think of anything much else. Okay. Yeah, maybe it's just that I'm looking at it a little too... Yeah, imagine me looking at something (laughs) too critically. (laughs) Yeah, according to our iTunes reviews, that's all I ever do. But yeah, this is a much lighter version of the story. Man, this is a light version? Yeah, it is. A lighter. I mean, it's not necessarily light and airy. But it's certainly lighter than there are bits that Dix has definitely leavened a bit so that they're not nearly so grim. For example, when we first meet Niter and uh, his soldiers chase the Doctor and Harry down the corridor and Raven says something along the lines of there's something different about those two. Niter's response is find out what's different about them by autopsy. And it's like, holy shit. (laughs) But that line doesn't appear in the book. No, but that is the type of humor that's in the book that actually I think works. A lot of gallows humor where I don't remember much of the particulars, but it it works for a sense of personality. Yeah, yeah. But it is strange that he does get rid of some of the better jokes. Like, again, in that first episode when the Doctor is having to talk with Raven. We'll wipe the thals from the face of Scarrow. I've heard that before. What? <laughs> it's a nice little continuity reference because, of course, the Doctor has heard this from the Daleks at least once before. But it's not on the page. And I have serious problems with that. If we're talking about what Trey was talking about earlier, that a novelization should be... Uh, if it's not going to reimagine the story, it should at least replay the story in our heads for us. And the story that replays in my head is very different in this book than it is on screen. And I'm not sure I like that much. But yeah, maybe that's just me. What else do I want to say about this book? I don't think that it hung together in the particulars of the plot and the premise. But somehow it did hold together to me as a sort of large-scale tragedy of civilization. Like, I knew the individual pieces didn't necessarily make much sense, but... It worked for me very well as an epic. Hmm. 
the idea of these two domed cities bent on destroying one another when they believe that they're they believe they're the only intelligent life in the universe on their planet. You have these three mm -hmm. different groups, the two cities and then the, the mutants who are between and around them, each of which would gladly see the other two gone permanently, even though believe, they believe there is nothing else but those three groups on that planet. Mm -hmm. And how nuts it seems and how good a description of many wars it is. I have to wonder if there are people on the other continents of Scarrow and if somehow the Khalids and the Thals were actually inhabitants of different continents and over time they've managed to destroy other parts of the planet and just whittle it away until their main cities are only literal hop, skip, and a jump away from each other. I mean, they don't entirely make sense. Uh, the, the, is it the, the Thals have the rocket, right? Uh, yes. That the, the Thal government wants peace, or to use our our rocket to destroy their entire civilization. You know, potato, potato. <laughs> it did seem a little odd to me that the, the Thals first wanted Davros to help them just establish peace, and, you know, if that wasn't going to work out, we'll just annihilate them all. That seemed an interesting binary choice, but it worked within the story somehow for me. Okay. Yeah, well, that's that's kind of what it needs to do. So if it did that, then it's definitely doing what it needs to do. What else do we want to say about this book? Or are there any lines that stick out to you? Because I, I do have a, a few, but not many. I don't know. I, I mean, I think what I have to say about this book is that I don't have much to say. It. I think if you go back into the original purpose of novelizations, if you're going into the late 70s, early 80s, before home video recording, and remember watching Genesis of the Daleks, and you kind of want to re-experience that. He does enough to jog your memory and retell the story, and it's a serviceable novelization. But I think Nider's a really great example of a character who stands out so well on TV, and just he's just kind of a henchman here. Yeah. And again, I don't want to be overly critical or negative on the story, but... It's kind of like it does its job as a novelization. And so it's not awful that I can like rip it to shreds. You know, I've, I've mentioned my problems with the, with the plot. And, but it's not so wonderful that there's things that I can gush over. So it's, it's really kind of a struggle for me to find things to talk about with this one. I could get that. And come to think of it, I know that you and I, in previous discussions of the story, you've talked about how padded you thought the story was so much so that it could be condensed into an LP record. And when you read this book, you can see that padding because Dix is giving us all of it because something has to stretch the plot out so that we don't question things such as how long it's taking or how Davros gets from the Dalek city, I'm sorry, the Khaled city to the Thal city so quickly at one point, <laughs> somehow beating the Doctor and Harry there when they're going the same direction. Pneumatic yeah. tubes. <laughs> pneumatic <laughs> tubes. I wish there had been. I think you're right on that. I wish there had been pneumatic tubes, to be honest. It would have made a lot more sense. No. But yeah, the flaws of the story, there are flaws. And it is the performances of the original that makes you forget about those, or at least not think about them to the point that you can enjoy the story and enjoy the epic sweep of it without saying, hey, that really doesn't work at all. Let me check. There, there were a few things I made note of, and then we'll get straight to Goodreads because, yeah, this one's, this one's a bit odd. Oh! 
there was just one other thing I wanted to talk about, but it's very brief, so don't worry about it. There is a little bit of fan lore that in chapter 12, the Dalek who seems to be speaking for the others as if already they had evolved their own leaders. According to fan lore, that Dalek goes on to become the Emperor Dalek, who we have seen before and who we will see again. Who emails us on a regular basis now. <laughs> oh, well, not me, obviously, but yeah, that that's my namesake, yes. But yeah, anyway. Anything else? <laughs> I'm named after my great aunt, but uh, well, Tony is named for yeah, the Emperor well, Dalek. We really don't want to go into that, do we? Who I'm named after, I should say. So, uh, should we go to Goodreads? Let us do so. I think so. Okay. As we always do, let's go to goodreads.com for online reviews of the book written by other readers and follow up with our own ratings. By the way, if you're listening to this podcast and want to have your review featured when we get to an upcoming book or you simply have a question about it, simply read the book, write a comment or review in our Goodreads group by the deadline so that we have a chance to see it before discussing the book ourselves. You may just get your review read out loud here. The average rating for this book on Goodreads out of five stars is an astonishing 3.99, with mostly three and five star reviews, but rarely any fours. The reviews from our Goodreads group have again been edited for length. Sorry, guys, but please keep them coming. Our Patreon, Dave Davis, gives it five stars and says, in addition to a great review of the audiobook, um, what he said, there are probably more versions of Genesis of the Daleks than any other Doctor Who story. The TV version airing in 1975 is a little dated, but no more so than any other television drama at the time. It has a well-deserved high reputation among fans. So beyond being the only way of having the story on hand for nearly three years, there wouldn't seem to be much point to this book, except that it races along in a way that the TV version, though enjoyable, doesn't. That, that is a point. The TV version is not known for its pace. Uh, there are changes here and there, but nothing major that I noticed. Not surprisingly, Sarah faints again. But surprisingly, it makes some sense this time. On screen, Sarah is descended upon by a group of mutos and disappears from sight. There's a cutaway. Then we come back and see her seemingly unconscious with two mutos arguing about whether or not to kill her. There's no explanation that links these scenes. But Dix puts in the only one that makes sense, adding that Sarah is angry with herself for fainting, as she doesn't tend to do that. The only problem I can see here is that the author appears not to have read any books by Terence Dix, as he has her <laughs> fainting all the time. <laughs> Davros was probably never intended to return, as the book has him explode at the end, but it's not so explicit that it can't be downplayed when we next encounter him. Dave Schwent gives it three stars and says, The writing is what you'd expect in a media tie-in book, pretty spare and workmanlike. It's pretty light on description. I'd say Terrence Dix captured the characters pretty well, but since he had the TV script to work from, that probably didn't take much effort. Since I've never seen this Tom Baker episode, I was pleasantly surprised by the twists. Once the Dalek action kicked off, I was entertained enough to keep reading. Since 30% of the Doctor Who stories after this one featured the Daleks, <laughs> there was little doubt things wouldn't be all fish fingers and custard at the end of the story. Genesis of the Daleks was a fun diversion for a couple hours. And finally, Nick gives it three stars and says, with the exception of one scene, I always found this story fascinating. That scene is the one in which the Doctor dithers about morality in an odd way when the real issue is whether he should change the course of history to suit the Time Lords, who really haven't thought it through. 
The problem with altering or preventing the past actions creating the Daleks is one of the ones he thinks through while dithering, but ignores the possibility that the creation is a fixed point that has to happen to keep history going on track. That bothered me in the episode, and it bothered me in the book. Yeah, me too. Otherwise, this was a real treat. It was a few pages longer than a lot of the early novelizations, and I think that helped keep it from feeling rushed. Overall, this is a good adaptation of a good Tom Baker episode, but which had a bad version of the Time Lords getting in the way at the start of the story. So, out of five stars, Dalton, what would you give this book? I'm going to agree with Dave and Nick and say three stars. It doesn't have anything that feels super special to me. It's just kind of a middle-of-the-road story. It clips along at a good pace. There's a little bit of comedy. There's not really much raised stakes or anything like that going on to make me care one way or the other, really, about what's going on. There's no real danger. So, yeah, three stars for me. Okay. Allison? I'm going to go three stars as well which is probably higher than it deserves objectively, but somehow, despite all the plot problems, it worked for me as a story with, as you said, epic sweep and uh, some interesting ideas. And these are the sorts of characters that Terrence Dix always does. He has either one or two civilizations being visited by the Doctor, and they have a lot of functionaries. And there's at least one who is sort of loyal and patriotic and moral, and one who is corrupt and greedy and just wants power and one who is flat out evil and then some middle ones and so i i I agree that this the characters are not as well drawn as they could be but they're interesting iterations of his types and his themes and his ideas and even though the the pieces were not well fitted together the whole somehow coalesced for me so maybe i'm giving it a high score as an admission of my own weakness but nah but i enjoyed it (laughs) okay and Trey? Uh, I guess a 2.5 for me. I've always had a problem with this story because I, I just can't get over that, that geography issue. And I think the collards are boring and interchangeable. So, And I would have liked a bit more attempts on Terrence Dix's part to repair that. So I think my three stars is my general rule for good, solid, workmanlike novelization. But it loses a little bit because I think there's some missed opportunities. Okay. And I'd have to go with 2.5 as well, mainly because my idea of a good novelization is one that recreates the story for you in your head. The problem is, if you've seen this story, then you know that what's here on the page isn't quite the story that's on screen. I will give Dick's props for papering up some of the bigger plot holes. I have to take off points for the fact that whenever he tries to improve upon a line or two or seven in the original (laughs) script, his improvements are not improvements. If anything else, they're just really awful by comparison, such as his overemphasizing Harry's rock music joke, for instance, which doesn't get that much emphasis on screen at all. It's it's an aside. Stop trying to make fetch happen. Yes, it's exactly (laughs) that. I thought it was funny because it's so lame that worked for establishing that Harry's... The thing that's funny about Harry is that he thinks that he's funny and he's not. Yeah, exactly. But we already know that about Harry. And there are other opportunities in the book to do that. And there are other things that he does like that, too, such as when they're going through the tunnel and Harry goes first. And that's done very differently on screen. It's not nearly as fun in the book. Oh, yeah. When we're told that if the doctor thought there was danger, a doctor would have gone first. 
Yeah, exactly. It, it, there's actually a much funnier exchange on screen, which I adore to pieces. Listen, I've been down tunnels before, and I've just had a rather nasty thought. Really? Yes. Suppose something's waiting for us in there. That is nasty. Better not tell Harry. He's gone first. The TV version has moments that simply aren't here. The only thing that seems to be a true improvement, apart from his papering over those plot holes, is what he does with Betton. And even she isn't all that well-developed, but she does get at least a little bit more development than she does on screen, which is great, because she's kind of a badass in both versions, but she's barely there. So, yeah. Anyway, 2.5 stars for me as well. Well, thank you guys. And thank you, fellow time travelers, for giving us your valuable time. Next time we discuss Terrence Six's novelization of Revenge of the Cybermen. Huh. In the meantime, if you've liked what you've heard here, like us on Facebook at Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast, all in word with no spaces. Also, feel free to follow us on Twitter. We're at DWTargetBC. Or subscribe to us via the podcast provider of your choice, including Spotify. If all else fails you, and it inevitably will, Email me directly at emperordalek at gmail.com or target book club in the subject line so I don't ignore it. Thank you very much for listening. Stay safe and enjoy your travels. Bye-bye. Bye. 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 Bye.